we're live. Another episode, another Thursday. Our gift to you is another guest episode. Another great one. This guest slid into our Instagram DMs with some movie recommendations that we promptly stole because they were so good, including some of our greatest movies that we've watched. 39 Pounds of Love was a recommendation from this guest. Murder Ball was a recommendation from this guest. We just keep getting fed. Gregory goes boom. Yeah, I was about to say, please don't forget that, because that was a treat. I tried to forget it. (laughs) I can't. Yeah, so we instantly became friends, because obviously these are great recommendations, and someone that can really speak the lingo, someone that can spar with Jamie when it comes to uh, a knowledge of movies and actors and stuff where I never feel adequate. And so we chatted for a while about which movie to watch and the one that came out of this, as you can tell from the title, is an amazing movie. So without further ado, I want to welcome our new friend, psychotherapist, Mike McLafferty. How's it going? Hey, it's gone pretty good. I was waiting for the famous uh, Tony intro, and uh, that was a good one. It's not me. It's just we have good guests. Like I, I just talk about you, and it sounds like I'm pumping your tires, but really, I'm just telling you what I see. Yeah, I mean, I haven't dealt with pneumatic tires for a long time, so I don't even know what that's like anymore. <laughs> me too. I always go with the solid rubber on my manual chair. Yeah, well, power chair too. Mike, are you outing yourself as a tire user? Yes, I am tire abuser, perhaps. <laughs> Your chair technician would not approve. Yeah, I know. Totally. Yeah, I am a pretty much full-time uh, power wheelchair user. Totally. Don't miss the days of pneumatic tires and getting flat tires. This is something that if anyone is listening in a power chair or a manual chair and you're not sure what we're talking about right now with pneumatic tires. If you still are using air tires, stop. (laughs) Immediately stop. It'll change your life. Your your chair technician might tell you that you should be using air tires because it'll help to absorb the shocks better and you can go over terrain. That is all a lie. Get foam tires. Now, I know we're talking to a subset of our listeners right now, but it's really important for us to tell you this. Do not have air tires anymore. You can run over glass. You can run over spikes. Mm. If you're in a police chase, they throw down a spike strip. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ever since I got my new tires, it's way easier to evade the cops. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you also recommending this to able-bodied bikers and cyclists? Uh, you know what? I know I'm talking out of turn. Because I imagine that there's probably good reason for air in some tires. Like, I've always wondered why cars don't have air-free tires. And it's probably the shocks. Like, those tires are on a much bigger scale, holding a lot more weight. So, you know, your suspension is really important. But if you're in a wheelchair, I have so many stories back in the day of having to like stop and get someone to pump up a tire and change mm-hmm. a tire and change a tire. And now I don't even think about tires. 
Hold on. Mm-hmm. You've had somebody change a tire for you on a whim, like in the middle of performing a daily chore or something? Well, no, I mean, like I wasn't just doing laundry, changing my tires. But, <laughs> uh, I was out and about. I definitely have had to change a tire. Because, uh, it's, it's a little, anyway, I don't want to talk about me right now. I have a my, question. <laughs> it, um. Uh, if we became solid rubber activists, what would our slogan be? I feel like if you ask, you probably have an answer already. <laughs> Usually I do. I don't like to go into these hypotheticals unarmed. I was thinking it could be, if you care, remove the air. All right. That's not bad. That's pretty good. All right. <laughs> I'll be honest, like, it's not enough to make me want to quit my job and become a solid rubber tire activist. Yeah, I would be... I would be Somewhat surprised if like solitaires are not the default uh, option, but yeah, I'm sure somewhere out there they're still getting. I mean, there's still an option, right? If we find out that one person changed their tires as a result of this podcast, then we've succeeded. We have succeeded. Yeah, yeah. Mike, tell us tell us about yourself. You are a tire user. Yeah, um, I have cerebral palsy. I am a therapist in the Bay Area. California, San Francisco area. I've been doing therapy for about nine years now, I think. Yeah, I don't know. What else What else do you want to know? When you do therapy, how much of your lived experience do you think, consciously or unconsciously, affects your approach or your client's perception of you, maybe? Mm-hmm. Do you think it ever comes up? Yeah, that's a good question. When I first started out, it was like, it felt like this thing I had to figure out and how much like, cause it kind of felt like an elephant in the room. All right. And I kind of tried to try to name it as just like, you know, any other sort of cultural difference that might be like, you know, maybe my client is a woman or, you know, different ethnicity and just kind of like naming that there are differences and, you know, I'm willing to explore whatever impact that might be having in our dialogue And also I would try to, well, I don't know. I think now I try to at least mention it, like maybe on the phone before we've actually met, just so that it's not like an extra uh, surprise for them, I guess, Um, coming into a new office space, you know, and, you know, being vulnerable as it is. Has that ever come up where you haven't mentioned it? And they look at you and go, wait a minute. Not really. I think at most, maybe just a, split second like pause or or something but it hasn't been it hasn't been a big big deal has anyone ever heard you tell them on the phone and then changed their mind like because i always wonder this because it kind mm-hmm. of reminds me of online dating in a way where you have yeah. to disclose at some point or at least you feel like you do i don't know maybe you don't but there is this kind of like, when do I tell them? Is it a surprise? Do mm-hmm. I wait till I'm at the table and they see me? Do oh. I tell them right up? Is it in my bio? Is it in my profile? Should I be like disabledtherapist.com? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I think there are a lot of parallels to finding a therapist and um, online dating down to yeah, looking through directories and trying to figure out what how you're yeah. going to like mesh with the person that you only, you know, have a a blurb to really and a couple of pictures maybe to form a, an opinion on. Uh, sorry, I lost the question. Just I'm wondering, like, how you navigate disclosing it. Is it 
it, it doesn't sound like you've had any negative reactions from not disclosing it, but there's right. still something that drives you to want to disclose it right out of the day. Yeah, I guess um, <laughs> I I think I tend to disclose it like at the end of the first phone call when we've already like made an appointment and, mm. um, you know, kind of hashed out all the details and they're already wanting, or at least I've said that they wanted to to come in and see me. So there's a little bit of, I don't know, maybe it's nothing that I have noticed. Maybe there could have been something that, you know, either they're too nice to say, or um, I don't know. I don't, I don't get a lot of like people just not showing up these days. Um, but I suppose, I mean, yeah, there, there hasn't been anything that I've been aware that like, oh, you know, that specifically was an, a hindrance or, or an issue for somebody. Do you do a lot of your counseling online or is it in person? Mm-hmm. Um, up until 2020, it was all in person. And then all of a sudden it was all online. Right, right now I'm doing a mix of both. We, we all, as in the three of us, are in a unique position where our professions don't really necessarily require that we disclose our disability or not necessarily disclose, but it doesn't affect the performance of our job in any way that would be obvious to an able-bodied counterpart, whether it's a customer or a coworker. I almost would disagree though. For my job, it's like an asset. Like it's almost a thing that markets me better for my role. That is very true. I almost have to disclose it to get in. It makes you an informed systems designer or developer because you you know exactly your use case because you are that use case and you are one of the best examples of the critical path of a lot of your tools. So that, that yeah, that is very true. But I see what you're saying. Like if you're, especially if you're working from home and, you know, you're, environment isn't a limiting factor for you, then your disability doesn't have to really come into play, which is why I was wondering if I asked Mike if if you work from home, because you're one of those rare wheelies like Jamie, where when you're sitting in front of a computer, you couldn't probably tell. Yeah, unless I like show you my hands. (laughs) (laughs) Do you ever wonder if, if it's like, if you're doing an online only appointment, Maybe you don't even have to tell me. Yeah, I haven't. Um, I just in generally am a very straightforward person. I don't, it, it didn't really occur to me to like hide that. Um, I also am like kind of thinking in my head, like maybe eventually there will be a point where we meet in person. So I don't want it to be like, right. you know, something that comes out too late. So yeah, that it is kind of an interesting point though. I was thinking about the earlier question you asked, which was, you know, how much, has my like experience being disabled like affected how I work? And I think I feel like it's probably I think it's made me more patient, probably in general. I think it's probably made me a good listener and very like attuned to mm-hmm. people around me. Um, so that comes pretty easily. And I don't know, like I can't I also can't predict what people's projections about me are. I think there have definitely been times where people have said like, oh, you know, that, that there was some kind of positive um, association with me being in a wheelchair. Like, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it's not necessarily always like a, a negative thing or they think that I'm not as capable. Some people think that, well, 
you know, I've probably had my own share of struggles, though I'm able to to relate to something along those lines. I honestly think that that may be true. Like, I think that as a disabled person, you're just sort of forced to think a little bit differently and to problem solve a little bit more in, in different situations. And mm-hmm. maybe this is there to say, but I do think that it does give you a little bit of an edge when it comes to like empathizing with other people's struggles. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that it, I mean, it's been my primary window into discrimination and um, privilege and um, things like that. So in, in that way, it's kind of allows me to have some somewhat of a yeah way to, to understand in a firsthand manner of discrimination. And that actually kind of ties back into what we were talking about earlier with, um, you know, employment, because um, when I was getting my hours for licensure, I um, I had been accepted to be a um, intern with the school district. So I'd been approved to be placed at a school, but it took them so long to find me an actual school that wanted me. Mm. Um, I interviewed at probably two or three different schools and there was a very similar reply, which was kind of like, we just don't think it's a good match or something like that to the point where my, I kind of brought it up with my, my, my uh, individual supervisor and they were kind of like, yeah, there might be some, some discrimination going on. And he recommended that I, you know, email some people, you know, with, with some concerns. And ironically, the next placement I got um, was the right one, but not just because of the letter I wrote, but the, like the social worker there, I asked him, I was like, so in, in the interview, I was like, so how do you feel about, you know, me being placed at the school and working with kids? And he was like, you know, I think it would be a great asset and you like bring a different perspective that'll be valuable for, you know, kids to, to interact with. So, but I don't know, I just, I guess that was a, that was one of the first times that I felt like just that, that suspicion of like, maybe people are questioning my abilities in a way that yeah that it's kind of like impacting what i can what i can do or like my next kind of professional step you know well it's also probably it it feels like you never quite know if or how much of it is related to that that discrimination because of your disability it feels so many times like uh if i wasn't i'm sure it would have been and yeah maybe probably honestly a lot of the times yes but then there's also the nagging feeling for me where i'm like yeah but maybe maybe it's just my personality i mean like i kind of hope so yeah it's hard to know i mean it's kind of a similar thing with like microaggressions where it's where you're kind of like suspecting like was that was that (laughs) um what it feels like but there's always that question because it's easy to kind of pass off or rationalize it's something else but at least the the social worker that did eventually choose you was able to see the asset in it, which I think, you know, speaks volumes to the progress we have made so far in mm-hmm. disability and inclusion. The fact that it, it went from being obviously you're just discriminated against to we'll hire you despite your disability. And now it's like we'll hire you because of disability adds value yeah it really worked out for the best i'm glad that it wasn't placed at those other sites yeah, for sure <laughs> this might come across as a bit of a non sequitur but 
a previous employer that I had, definitely not my current one at all, of course. Um, <laughs> when I first started the job, it was located at a kind of a central campus where you had several different uh, office buildings. And my department was kind of split between several of those buildings. So if I wanted to have a meeting with certain people where it was where we inevitably would have to collaborate uh, quite a lot, I would have to be crossing from my building to the other one. And in the wintertime, uh, in certain parts of Canada, it's difficult to go outside in a power chair and and gain access to these uh, th- these campus buildings and so it was interesting because i noticed that my my bosses and this is plural my bosses were making um plans and and smaller scale decisions around how to improve accessibility which is really nice and very thoughtful but they didn't consult me directly um they they would uh schedule meetings at a different location just kind of assuming that it would be more convenient for me or they would ask people to come to my desk directly and just sort of like as i say not involve me in these discussions and on the one hand that was somewhat comforting because i could tell that my bosses were thinking about these things but on the other it felt quite infantilizing and kind of silly like let me tell them what works and what doesn't when it pertains to my access and mobility. Another thing was they installed like multiple uh, door opening buttons in play in, in ways that weren't really practical. And I found that really frustrating because they're, they're not cheap and there were other places where it would have worked better. And I kind of, as the only person in a wheelchair, like at the company at the time, which is something that I knew for certain, I thought, you know, like have this conversation with me. Like I know I'm just mm-hmm. a new hire or whatever, and I haven't even cleared probation. But you know, and so I, I, I wondered, like the decision that went behind, like oh, we maybe we don't want Michael to work at this school. Like could it have been as simple as you know there are vast areas of the school that are totally inaccessible, and it's a little bit embarrassing, and we don't really have a good enough excuse for it. So maybe it's not a good fit. Yeah, I mean, there's I guess there's tons of reasons there there could have been but but yeah i mean you're kind of pointing to like i mean maybe they even put the you know in your case they put the buttons in according to like universal design or whatever but that's not universal design doesn't actually work for everybody and i almost wonder if that was it's almost like it was designed so that there could almost be less reliance on or like having to communicate with you know the actual people to you know figure out the best i I don't know maybe that's cynical of me but um it it felt passive aggressive because it felt like it, they were more comfortable just making the decisions outright than with having the conversation with me because they weren't yeah. sure if they if they could bring it up or talk about it directly. And it's almost like if if someone's going to discriminate with me, I wish they would be up up front about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because sometimes yeah. like people can discriminate and it does hurt, but if they're honest, it hurts a lot less. Mm-hmm. Well, at least there's a chance to have a conversation which you know it might be uncomfortable but it would have benefited you if you could have some input on what actually works for you and not have people assume yeah i mean it reminds me of times where like an attendant is training a new hire and they'll be talking and the new hire would be like um should i put this over here or put it over here and the other attendant will be like, uh i don't know i think it goes over here um 
But I don't know. Maybe we'll just put it here for now, and then they can move it later if they need to. <laughs> and the whole time, I'm like, I can hear you. Like, you can just ask me, and I'll tell you where to put it. Yeah. Or like, uh, there'll be a new hire, and they'll be showing you, they'll be showing the new hire around your place and talking about you in the third person. Yeah. Jamie doesn't like it when you do this, this, yeah. and this. So make sure you do it like this and do it like that. And you're like, well. I could help them. It's no problem. We can build a rapport. Like, you don't have to do this. I actually love hearing those because I'm always curious to get some insight into how the training attendant, like the attendant that's doing the training, thinks about me. Because right. like, I always like to leave the lights off because Anthony's really grumpy in the mornings. And then it makes me, nobody's ever said that, but like, <laughs> it makes me think about like how they perceive me, which then can help me navigate my care with them better. Right. Yeah. The way that they essentialize you is incredibly illuminating. It's almost like when you're in middle school and you read your report card from your teacher for the first time, and they're talking about you in the third person, presumably to your parents, Yeah, because they assume that your parents will review the card. It's the same thing. And again, it's infantilizing. Jamie is very good at words. Yeah. <laughs> We're concerned with the amount of jello Jamie is consuming at lunch. <laughs> I guess that's an inside joke because we haven't mentioned my habit of eating jello lately. Yeah, we watched a movie together yesterday with Mike and we recorded obviously today. And both times Jamie was slightly late because he had to grab his jello. You're right. I did have to grab it. <laughs> it was purple flavor jello. Yeah, and it was delicious. In case you're wondering, fair listeners. And when do you accept visitors at the hospital? <laughs> Visiting hours are between 5 and 7. I'm to bed by 8.30. <laughs> so, Mike, you said that um, there are a lot of parallels between finding a counselor and online dating. Are there any other you can think of? Uh, any other parallels? Yeah. Can we out you as being dating? Um, as <laughs> being dating. I am dating. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've used, uh, online dating apps for many years with very little success. And yeah, and up until, uh, a few months ago, um, I met someone and yeah, we've been dating for about four months now. She's a big fan of the show. So I'm sure she would appreciate it. Victoria would appreciate a shout out from you guys. Oh, shout out Victoria. Thanks for your support. Send us your movie recommendations if they're even half as good as Mike's. I can't wait to watch them. Michael, can I ask you a personal question? Sure. When do you think about your disability the most? Ooh. That's such a good question. That's such a good question. Um, because you seem like a very centered person. <laughs> and like, I, I'm, you know, like when we're asking you about your profession, mm-hmm. You sort of you sort of have alluded to never having been like overly self-conscious of it. And mm-hmm. I feel like I'm on the other side of the spectrum. Like I have a lot of anxiety around performance and like of ascribing to an able-bodied standard. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if there are times in your life when you, like disability kind of rears its ugly head. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's taken me, I mean, I'm, I'm over 40 now, I'm 41, just turned 41 recently. 
And it's taken a while to get to the point where I am now. I mean, it's still it's still an ongoing thing, but um, I think during my um, you know master's degree program, there was a lot of emphasis on personal growth, and there was definitely points during that coursework that kind of I know there were there was a, a subtle shift towards like a little more self acceptance in a lot of ways, and a big part of that was just I guess feeling like being less self-conscious about what people see and how people see me. And, and Jamie, I know, you know, that at least, or I'll speak for myself, like when I'm nervous, I'm tense. Like my body doesn't work the same way that it would if nobody's watching. Um, and I don't know, there's a process of kind of just like not caring (laughs) as much, um, about being like fixating on how my hands look or, you know, just trying to present more, normative Mm. and i guess like and also at the same time kind of being more aware of like disability just being disabled as like a political identity also and so so yeah it's i i wasn't born like not (laughs) self-conscious and i still am from time to time i think but i'm trying to think of your first question i think i don't know like getting on public transportation probably um or like you know like buses especially because either you know if they're crowded or the bus driver usually has to like tell somebody to move or whatever like and and they have totally different ways of um saying that or or just like you know people referring to me as a wheelchair like wheelchair coming through or (laughs) you know things like that that's the first thing that comes to mind i don't know i guess in less common situations like i don't know being anywhere where like dancing is involved i think that comes up very good point. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I think I think I've set up my kind of daily routine uh, in a way that I don't. I don't necessarily. I'm not really thinking about my disability like uh, all the time. And also, I guess I guess the other big thing would probably be like I don't know, going to the bathroom. <laughs> like, um, yeah. whether it's wondering when when the next accessible restroom is going to be in my day, or yeah, or like how accessible is that that bathroom that you're in in that moment when maybe that's all you have, you know, all you have available. And it's just like, you have to to deal with, with that moment. Um, that's probably another time when it comes up. Yeah. Those feel like kind of all the, those are the greatest hits right there for me as well. I would think I'm pretty good at keeping my wheelchair charged, but if my wheelchair ever gets low, like that's another big one. Oh, I hate that feeling. That is so terrible. Like think about forgetting to charge your phone, but it's your legs. Right. The worst. <laughs> yeah, totally. The point you mentioned about dancing, that's so interesting because like there are so many times and this sounds so cheesy, but there are times when you do want to kind of partake in the, in those kinds of celebrations. And I'm always like I've been to a number of weddings and been in the wedding party, like when mm-hmm. you are sort of whether you want to be or not, like a focal point. Mm -hmm. And so there's points where, you know, you eventually go out on the dance floor and like you're drinking and whatnot. And there's a bit of like a group pressure. And I don't know if I'll ever be comfortable with that kind of thing in front of people because it always feels very, uh, I don't know, it's hard to dance when you have mobility issues. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's something that just draws attention to you, right? Exactly. I used to, similar to like singing, if you like to sing, like, I mean, I do like to sing, but it's, it's almost easier to do in front of strangers than people you know. And I think dancing the same way, like I, 
used to every so often go out to like a club or something. And I'd rather do that by myself almost because I can almost pretend that nobody else is watching or have a couple of drinks and not care. And, you know, someone inevitably like, you know, comes up and, and talks to you, which, you know, can go a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's like the bro that's like, oh, it's so great. Or like, you know, it's good to see you out here, man. <laughs> Rock on. Yeah. Um, or whatever. But I don't know. I think, I think a lot of those times was some of that was just like almost like a rebelliousness or just trying to find a way to, to go out and like move my body and have fun and try not to care about it. But it was definitely like, it was fun, but it also had complications. Yeah. It's almost like you feel a little bit more naked than if you were literally naked because you're ultimately sort of betraying the limitations of your, your range of motion that people can look at you and be like, yeah, you know, he presents well, but he really is disabled. <laughs> and that's a moment when yeah. you can't really you can't really paper over it. Yeah. And even if I'm trying to like, you know, in some way show that I'm like cool and calm and collected, like I'm still really focused on like how how do I like am I am I moving in a way that shows that I have like some amount of rhythm or like, you know, that I I'm moving in a way that that is at least like I can feel comfortable with and not just flailing or I don't know like I'm not I'm not being completely free with myself either um it's not it's not expressive dance but I'm still trying to have a good time while while keeping a modicum of you know still trying to keep dignified (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) I totally understand yeah it's like of all the things that the tv show special confronted like with an unflinching Mm. eye for detail and respect for you know the autobiographical experience of ryan o'connell mm-hmm. um the the scenes where they were at prom and there's a bunch of wheelies especially with cerebral palsy who are dancing i was like mm-hmm. i don't know if i want to see that because I, mm-hmm. I i don't want to like be afraid that they're gonna fall or something it, i just experiencing all my anxieties through them on the dance floor yeah i mean that also reminds me of uh what was that movie is it summer to remember best summer ever yeah, best summer ever. That's it. Yeah, because um, there was so much. Yeah, just like singing and dancing, but you, but you got used to it because it was just like everyone in the cast was disabled, so it wasn't presented as like a spectacle. Where it was a little bit more so in special, like you know, you're you're seeing it through Ryan's eyes, and you're seeing it like you know, and just exposed to like his his partner at the time, who is able bodied and dancing, and um, but yeah, I know what you mean, like. It's kind of similar to like if you see, I don't know, I remember like my parents got one of those big chunky video cameras when I was like about eight years old mm. and um, seeing myself on camera, just like in my walker, like I was like, oh, that's that's how I look. <laughs> like I, yeah. I, I assumed that I just was kind of walking more similar to, to everyone else, but guess not. <laughs> right. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. It's the it's like hearing your voice for the first time in a recording but it's yeah. your body and your body language. Because I'm pretty right. sure there's still, even though like we have atrophy and, and I guess brain damage or whatever, like your brain probably still thinks you're moving like in a physiologically correct manner. I think it's more like, um, you know, that scene in The Matrix where um, it's like the, they explain that the, they look, the, it's like their mental projection of themselves. <laughs> yeah. I kind of feel it's like that. We have like, that's our, I don't know. We just have our idea of like how we appear to ourselves. Um, that's not completely, or it's not like based on 
you know, seeing ourselves so much as how we want to look or how we think we look. It does sort of beg the question, like you're talking about the best summer ever and uh, uh, special um, physical comedy uh, and disability. Like mm. The Princess Bride devotes a third of its runtime to extracting the comedy out of a character being disabled. And the kind of question is, because the tone of The Princess Bride is very warm and approachable and playfully funny, like in a universal sense, it always feels good to watch. It's a very feel-good movie. When yeah. they start using disability for that comedy, is it cruel and misinformed or like is it in stride with the tone of the rest of the film? Mm-hmm. And, and that's a difficult question to answer, but like, yeah, in special, it works especially well. And I didn't have like brief episodes of neuroses while watching parts of that film, I guess, because <laughs> it was sort of like, it was kind of very thoughtfully choreographed with disabled people in mind. And the whole point mm-hmm. of it was to construct these elaborately staged dance numbers with disabled people to show that disabled people could participate in choreography and could, you know, not diminish or distract or take away from the intended tone and the purpose of the film. You know what I mean? So it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I guess I, I had a lot there. But yeah, I think that Princess Bride is almost the opposite, where it's completely unintentional. And therefore, you can choose to think about it or not. Yeah. Yeah. But in in being unintentional, I think it is more likable and endearing than offensive. Because it it is remarkable how funny the last third of the film is. And almost very thoughtful, too, because their solution is not to is not necessarily to cure the disabled man like before the the conflict of the film so they mm. they're they're continually problem solving i guess we need to kind of backtrack and give <laughs> some more context but anyway um yeah let, let's come back to this <laughs> yeah i think that i feel like that's like a main a main like theme of what we need to tease out in the movie but it, it, it shows up later in the film for sure tony uh do you have any more follow-up questions I've just been enjoying this conversation. I feel like you guys have uh, a similar experience in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Obviously, like you share a diagnosis, but even beyond that, just, you know, it's like sort of presented itself similarly. And I think you probably have like similar um, functional abilities and disabilities. And so I've just sort of been being a fly on the wall enjoying it, but. Um, yeah, I think I think Jamie's got a little more manual chair ability than I do. But um, other than that, I think we're pretty similar in terms of, yeah. Or I don't know. I mean, I'm, you know, I make assumptions, but I can I can climb a staircase <laughs> if there's a handrail. <laughs> not not fast, though. Oh, no, oh, humble either. brag. Sorry, Tony. <laughs> should, I want to see you guys try to outdo yourself to see who's more able-bodied. <laughs> like a stair-off? Yeah. Oh man, I what always, if I had like, what if I had a custom, I was like, oh, let me just wheel in these set of stairs right now and we can do a a, a race. If, if I asked you both right now, how many stairs you could climb without taking a break, how many do you think it could be? Eight. Oh, what's like, what's, how, how long is a break? 
Uh, 15 seconds. So like I can go up as one stair, wait, so 15 seconds and then go up the next stair? That's a break. That's a break. Yeah. You can wait 14 seconds. So you're saying without, without really yeah, yeah, pausing? Yeah, without a break. Okay. So you yeah, can okay. go up, wait a few seconds, less than 15, take another step. But as soon as you take a consecutive 15 second break, I stop timing. I think I, yeah, I could probably like at least a flight, um, whatever that is, like 10 or. Are we going up or down? We're going up, right? I prefer <laughs> to go up. I always prefer uphill, which I know is counter to able-bodied people, but I feel safer on an uphill incline because I hate the sense that I will lose control on the downhill. And it's also harder on your knees, I find. If you're going downhill, do you face backwards? Oh my god, no. I do. Yeah, it sort of twists towards yeah the rear as I. Yeah, I think I would too. Wait, 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 wait. Downstairs, I'm basically like almost going like walking backwards. Yeah. What? That makes <laughs> sense to me. I understand. Like I back down ramps sometimes. I'm also like using both hands on one side of the stairs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if you yeah, are you're sidestepping. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you're like Indiana Jonesing up the stairs. Yes. Yeah. That sounds cool. <laughs> yeah. That's I see I don't sidestep cuz cuz it's like it's kind of scary. Mm-hmm. I don't know, like I need to see what's in front of me. Yeah. But yeah, like going uphill just feels safer even in my walker too because it's like I think Yeah. The I think my CP uh causes a tendency to lean forward. And mm-hmm. so I'm always sort of catching up with myself, even when I'm on level ground. So when I'm uphill, I'm no longer catching up with myself. And maybe my my weight is better distributed. So I love going uphill. Actually, I could go uphill all day. Yeah. Maybe that's why I, I can cope with disability. Because <laughs> it's all uphill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're made for uphill. Although, I don't know. Although pushing a wheelchair uphill is another another thing. Oh yeah, no fuck that shit. Yeah, <laughs> I actually get like kind of angry and resentful privately at wheelies who go long distances in manual chairs because <laughs> I think that the world is really, especially not designed for fucking wheelchairs. Even the slightest ramp is a pain in the ass to go up. Like you need a formidable upper body. To, mm-hmm. to constantly go up ramp in a manual chair. Whereas yeah. in a walker, you can kind of, you know, flub your way. One of my good friends is in a manual chair and like he will like hold doors open for me. And oh. like, it's, <laughs> yeah, he's basically able bodied. What a talented asshole. Yeah, it's incredible. Like he'll, <laughs> he'll push a heavy door, roll through it, spin around, grab it, and hold it. The other day, we went to a movie together and uh, he he opened the door, held it for me, and like four able-bodied people went through. Right? And he's making us look bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I feel so. I now I gotta go. Sorry, you guys, I gotta take a break and go up my stairs a few times. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Michael, would you like to tell us why you selected the Princess Bride today? Even though I sort of gave a spoiler earlier. Well, first of all, I should also say part of the reason Michael chose it is because. We stole his original idea. When we were originally going to do an episode together, he's like, I want to earmark murder ball. And that's going to be my episode. We're going to talk about that together. My bad. I didn't see that message. 
Yeah, I was low-key heartbroken when I saw that, that episode come out. But yeah, I'm so sorry. That's totally, <laughs> that's totally my fault. No, it's okay. I mean, I'm I'm glad that we're getting to do Princess Bride because I I also like gave you recommendations for some pretty like terrible movies to go through. Yeah, you're I'm great. just glad we have. <laughs> I know, and I'm sorry, not sorry, but um, I'm glad but that we're getting to do it. Us. You didn't just give us titles. You did say, like, <laughs> you should watch 39 Pounds of Death. This one's going to get done. Get ready. And then you're like, you should watch Gregory Girls. Boom. It's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did. Tony, <laughs> was that a an intentional slip? 39 Pounds of Death? <laughs> <laughs> That's what the movie's called in my head. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what is that movie? Like, Eight Ounces or whatever? <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, Seven Pounds with Will Smith. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. That's actually the, the PSI of his slap. It's seven pounds per square inch. <laughs> Sorry. Wow. <laughs> um, but what were we saying? Yeah, why did you choose Princess oh, Bride? Right. Well, the last time, yeah, the last time I, I caught a clip of it, a couple, a couple of scenes stood out to me, one of which was like when, yeah, when he, well, I guess we won't jump ahead. There are some scenes that definitely were relatable and funny and in some ways. And then in other places, there are things that were just like wildly ableist. So I thought, yeah, I just thought there were a lot of like good nuggets to kind of unpack. And and it's just a fun movie, too. So I don't mean to, to like destroy anyone's like childhood by tearing it apart, but maybe just a little bit. That's what we're here for. We, our job is to find flaws in movies we love. Unless it's Disney. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the little mermaid is can't do anything wrong. It's untouchable, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but also, like, I'm so happy you chose this movie because, you know, we've watched a lot of grueling films recently. Yeah, I noticed. Or at least for me. For me, too. The, the Animatrix is <laughs> a movie that Jamie loved and watched eight times. But um, Well, and then there's, you know, the butterfly effect. Which oh, yeah. Jamie also loved. And watched three times. I was apologizing every 10 minutes during that movie. <laughs> so the fact that Mike was like, how about we do the Princess Bride? I jumped on it because that's right up my alley. The sense of humor of this movie is my 12-year-old sense of humor. Um, and it's for sure relevant. Yeah. How do we start talking about this movie? Do we give a plot synopsis? Yeah, okay. Mike, do you want to give it? <laughs> I mean, it's very kind of chapter or like, I don't know what the word is, but, you know, it's very linear in its plot. So it's hard to like say what happens without giving like a play by play. But I guess basically like roughly it's it's a love story. The main character is named Wesley. He in the beginning of the movie, he's presumed dead and his true love gets engaged to this prince or king um and it's basically kind of like a fairy tale fantasy type um setting i guess or genre yeah it reads like a book right yeah i mean it was it's based on a book too um yeah but it feels very kind of fairy tale-ish um and so wesley has he like comes back from everyone thought he was dead he comes back but he's um basically like kind of facing different trials to get um, get back together with his um, his beloved and, um, yeah, almost dies in the process. And 
there's a, also a cast of characters that kind of he meets along the way. Yeah, th- it's basically just Super Mario, where <laughs> <laughs> where <laughs> Princess Peach is played by Robin Wright, <clears throat> and Mario is played by <laughs> Carrie Elvis of Saw fame. Uh, it's you know I actually looked because we were saying like how the hell do you pronounce his name? There's apparently several YouTube videos that explain how to pronounce his name that I looked up. It is in fact Carrie Elwes because it's Elwes? it's like yeah it's British. Um, and so it's a W sound. Elwes. Elwes. Yeah. Elwes. Elwes. I don't <laughs> carry. Carry Elwes. Elwes. It's probably got some some Welsh connection there. I don't know. They like the Ws. Yeah. It is, shall we say, phonetically awkward regardless. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Roasted. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so like Wesley's this this poor farmer boy. And he falls in love with a woman who is a privilege. And then the woman uh, is to be wed to an evil king. And uh, Mario doesn't want uh, Peach to marry the king. Bowser. Yeah, marry Bowser. So he goes about, you know, hopping on some mushrooms and uh, jumping over obstacles and uh, tries to save his queen. And th- I mean, that's basically it. Is The fun part of the plot is that a lot of the <coughs> villains that Carrie faces along the way, he winds up befriend- befriending mm-hmm. and sort of winning over in playful and like interesting and like kind of even arguably heartwarming ways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the choreographed action scenes are not only well done, but they are funny, you know, like they've integrated physical comedy and like sleight of hand with the camera to, like to convey a kind of comedic grammar much like simon Pegg movies of late and so it's really like it's almost a perfect film in terms of a genre and everything that it aims to accomplish it's it's very facetious which is like the perfect way to be for a movie for me it like it doesn't take itself seriously it actively tries not to take itself seriously there are scenes where you can tell it almost felt like it was about to get serious, so it just hams it up to just appeal to my 12-year-old sensibilities. And I love the premise of a a guy, a a grandpa, reading a book to a child. So it kind of gives space for all of these ridiculous things to happen and the Mm -hmm. script to be sort of weird and jarring at times. And and then it, it kind of reminds you a few times throughout that it is just a book and just a fairy tale and just a joke, really. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's just it's just a pleasure to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it lets you kind of enjoy the story from both the kid's point of view and the adult, like yeah. either at the same time or you know either either or. Yeah, which is which is kind of cool. And you're right, it does like break up some of the melodrama of the actual story, um, with with you know kind of the kids' reactions, like either being grossed out at like kissing or you know yeah. or being just caught up in the, the the cliffhanger or whatever. It's it's fun knowing that Peter Falk, the grandpa character, knows that he will eventually like ensnare the interest of his grandson. Like it's inevitable mm-hmm. that you find this appealing because. Like, this is a story that no one can, you know, dismiss or be critical of. Until now. <laughs> Until now, yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> we all loved it. That said. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, what I, one of the things that I noticed about this movie is it's, it's almost obsessed with perfection. Um, like, Wesley is a perfect character. He doesn't make any mistakes. He's the smartest person in the room. He can beat everyone at their own game. And to just like put, push that over the top, even when he's disabled, he's still the best. <laughs> yeah. Or, or he, he has the arrogance of the best regardless. Right. Like he knows he's going to succeed, even though he, he's essentially fucking paralyzed. <laughs> and he's so smug, like the entire time. He has that little like half smile that I kind of just want to slap half the time. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> he's so sure of himself. It's funny. You say that he. Uh, is perfect there are times when he does sort of like fail or flub like uh there's a moment early in the film when he's chasing uh wallace sean and uh andre the giant uh and mandy mm-hmm. patinkin uh, across like a body of water and they get to this like peninsula or something this island and they have to scale a cliff like a cliff with a rope and mm-hmm. carrie gets stuck halfway because Andre pulls everyone up super quick and it's really funny too the <laughs> sight of Andre with three small men like literally hanging on to him for dear life and he's like pulling himself up this rope and they're also clearly doing something to expedite that process and not really hiding that he's not physically doing it so it all kind of works on like a meta humor level i think we were we were laughing the whole time it was it was playing out anyway. So the, so Andre and and the gang like get to the top of the cliff and then they cut the rope and Carrie like grabs onto the side of the mountain and he can't get up and it's the one time that he has to swallow his pride and basically get assistance from Mandy Patinkin to make it up the rest of the way so they can have an honorable duel or whatever. I just like this whole scene because there's a there's a camaraderie between villain and hero that is trying to be you know cheeky and funny and then there's there's also this mutual respect between Mandy and Carrie that they play for jokes over and over and every single one hits really well yeah i mean i think that you're right there there are times when wesley can't advance like get further without help mm-hmm. um and i find that pretty compelling especially when he's in the situation where he can't like move his body at all Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't help but feel like you're supposed to think that he's getting all of that help be- just because of who he is and because everyone is, you know, completely, um, he's so charismatic that of course, you know, everyone's going to give him exactly the help that he needs and deserves. Right. Or, you know, he's, his motivations are pure. He's in love and therefore right. he deserves everyone else's help because yeah, he deserves, he deserves love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so yeah, right. so the movie the movie's forces must bend to his purposes. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I guess it's not it yeah, the movie does explain a few times that it's not just, you know, Wesley's character that drives him on, but it's also because of this kind of mission to um preserve this true love that is, you know, it's it's one in a million or it's or 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 one of a kind even. Mm-hmm. Tony, uh, can you? Would you like to play a clip for? Can you play a clip for us? Yeah, which one? Good question. How about this one? This is my favorite one. Being a refuse, 
So bow down to her if you want. Bow to her. Bow to Queen of Slime, the Queen of Filth, the Queen of Putrescence. Boo! Boo! Rubbish! Filth! Slime! Muck! Boo! 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 I just love how much fun they're having shooting this scene. You can tell she, like, came for this scene. She was ready for it. She gave it her all. It also reminded me of that pretty famous shame scene in Game of Thrones, but it's, like, so hammed up and goofy, and it just, you can't help but (laughs) join the comparison of how silly Game of Thrones is for how seriously it takes itself when she's doing this. Yeah, yeah. that scene That scene is actually um, Robin Wright's having a nightmare. She's worried that she has failed her true love for going through with the marriage, for not escaping the king, essentially. So she's having this dream like the night before she gets married. And it's supposed to be almost a little bit scary, too, because the woman who's speaking in that scene it looks like a witch and her makeup is very like, it's quite elaborate. Like it's not, I don't think completely played for jokes. You are supposed to be like mildly disturbed, but that is also why you're laughing. Yeah. Uh, So yeah, the, the movie strikes this really great balance where it's not quite like the, the Mel Brooks kind of silly uh, frat boy humor circa like the late seventies, early eighties. It still wants to evoke all of the pleasures of a fairy of a fairy tale or of a high concept genre, but where it is silly, it's very tastefully so. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. yeah. Where is it most a real movie for you guys? Um, for me, it's once uh, once Wesley's had the life sucked out of him, and he is basically being like every movement he makes is done by one of his companions and he's you know he's still kind of gathering his wits and trying to to make a plan and he's still very you know mentally capable but he can't even like move his head hardly um at least at first why won't my arms move you've been mostly dead all day yeah exactly (laughs) and this is where it's fun because Andre the Giant then becomes one of his attendants. Totally. Oh. And he's disabled, arguably. Are we going to say that Andre the Giant is disabled? Well, he is othered. I don't know if he's disabled, but he's definitely... His size is used for its utility and for the absurdity of how he looks next to a tiny actor like Wallace Shawn or even even our hero. Like Andre makes our hero look like a wet noodle, you know, like absolutely, absolutely nothing. Well, I mean, like it is a diagnosis, right? In mm-hmm. that it affects his abilities. We're getting very philosophical here, but it's it's an interesting discussion because if your quote disability makes you in some ways more quote able, mm-hmm. does it? still lie in the realm of disability yeah that's a really that's a really complicated question i think every disabled person though uh whatever our coping mechanism is how we try to offset the disadvantage of disability right so then what's what's his disadvantage is it is it 
the fact that he is treated like a freak. Potentially, yeah, because his size can be commodified, and it was by, you know, it, it literally was. And it would be hard to text on an iPhone with hands that big. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Have you ever seen Shaq drink a bottle of water? He holds yeah. it between his index finger and his thumb. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, the juxtaposition of Andre next to anyone will evoke laughter if you play it right. I also have to assume it's a hardship having to rack up such insane food and drink bills when you go to a restaurant. <laughs> I remember watching a full documentary on a certain era of the World Wrestling uh, Federation, and there was a whole 15-minute segment on the legendary nature of Andre's farts. <laughs> and that's, that's not a joke. Like, they talked about him farting in the break room for, like, at least 10 minutes. <laughs> was it just that they were, like, super long and long-winded and loud, or was it the smell? It was everything under the sun. I mean, they <laughs> needed a full 10 minutes. And they would they would talk, too, about the volume of the alcohol it would take to get him drunk yeah, and all the rest of it. And just, like, the toll that the profession took on his body over time and... Obviously, it's a deeply dysfunctional environment. What I liked about how the movie uh, utilized uh, Andre's assets, I guess you could say, is like it, it it isn't filmed. It's almost filmed like Shakespeare in the Park. Like because from a cine- cinematography point of view, they don't stage it like an action movie or like a quote unquote serious fairy tale film or serious fantasy movie, there aren't these kind of uh, elaborate, dramatic camera angles that show like what a monster, uh, like an oversized man could be. If you know what I'm saying, like they don't treat Andre like Hodor. Like they, mm-hmm. they. Well, Vizzini does, but. <laughs> yeah, Vizzini does, but he's also the most villainous character and the most reprehensible yeah. character. I think he treats everyone as like, stupid basically yeah yeah they're they're pawns on his chessboard service purposes etc so but in this movie like andre um is he is large like he's unavoidably bigger than everyone but the the movie never seems to really uh exemplify it i mean obviously the way that he does problem solve uh, the, like you know, the way that he engages in combat with Carrie, for example, is to throw rocks and to. But that was Vizzini's idea. Remember, he's like, "Do it your way," and then he's like, "What's my way?" <laughs> he's like, oh, "Throw rocks at him." That's a good point. But then Andre's like, "I would much rather like that's a very pe- like that's way more aggressive than I'm comfortable with." Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's like, "Oh, that's not very my way is not very sportsmanlike." <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point. So yeah, the movie I think is pretty respectful of Andre. There's a couple instances where he like, you know, bops a character on the head mm-hmm. to like take them out of commission. And another where they stage like their their siege of the king's castle is based on a, a misdirection, like a Trojan horse mm-hmm. that sort of uses Andre's size. But I I don't think that it's exploitative or it is it's at least it it doesn't indulge in the sort of tropes that you would expect it to. Yeah, I and he's fully on on board with those things, and I think I think they do like I think they kind of try to play to his strengths in a way. I also like how he you know he he enjoys speaking in rhyme 
which gives him kind of yeah, like sure. an artistic, like he's not like, even though he might be, or people might assume that he's not intelligent. He, he definitely is and, and sensitive. And so they do like kind of cast him against type in some way. For sure. In fact, every male character in, in this movie is sensitive, like mm-hmm. n- except for the king, like except for the aristocracy, like n- no man in this movie is incapable of giving a compliment. <laughs> what about Billy Crystal? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, his little marital squabble there. But I agree. Like, yeah, the men are not like generally they're, they're a little more, yeah, more sensitive than you'd expect. Not only are they sensitive, but they're no less valiant because of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, there's, there's, there is the occasional like sexist joke, uh, mm-hmm. but I guess as a qualifier, like for its time, there's far less sexism than you would think. And I think Robin Wright's performance kind of evokes more. Uh, she's more like she's a stronger character on the screen than the script would indicate if that makes sense mm-hmm. and also like for its time meaning the movie came out in 87 but it was also pretending to be far earlier than that <laughs> yeah yeah that's true yeah exactly it's like a medieval times where it, it, like they're marrying off a woman which in itself, isn't something that would have happened in 1987. Right. Yeah. I mean, depending on where in the world you live, I guess. But um, I like what you're saying, Jeremy, about Under the Giant not being exploited physically, because there were some moments where I was actually having a hard time scaling him, because his hands are so big, and you can't really um, adjust the camera for that. Sometimes, like when it was hand over hand, you realize just how massive he is. But then there were a lot of shots where he was standing next to someone and not that much taller than them. And it almost made it seem like they must have had the other person standing on something or some way to make it seem like he wasn't just towering over them. Because I just looked, he was like seven foot four or something. Holy fuck. Yeah. And it never appeared that he was that tall in the movie. No, he was on equal footing with his with his stars. Yeah. He kind of has very much that pull or natural charisma that a lot of like overly muscular action movie stars have. But I mean, I think he relies on it a lot less than somebody like Schwarzenegger. His castmates love him. Like it's very evident that they like him a lot. Yeah, at the beginning, I I kind of thought they were doing like an Arnold Schwarzenegger in kindergarten cop kind of thing with him, but Mm. it definitely didn't feel like that. They definitely empathized with him and they sympathized with him. It was very much equal to all of his other screenmates. Yeah, because Schwarzenegger is either trying to be a tough guy or like bumbling, which is a little more like how he was in kindergarten cop. Yeah. Andre or, or Fezzik, yeah, they don't play him. He's not trying, he's not a tough guy. Not really. I mean, he's yeah. strong, but he's not trying to, he's not projecting tough guy image. If he is tough, it's reluctantly so. Mm-hmm. Um, one other, okay, can I talk briefly about a small scene that I fucking love for, for personal reasons? Fezzik! I need you! I can't leave him alone. He's getting away from me, Fezzik! Please! Ah! 
It's really hard to glean from that clip, like just from the audio alone, like what's actually happening. But basically, like Carrie and Andre are storming the castle with Mandy Patinkin. I have to say Mandy's full name every time. <clears throat> um, but anyway, they're storming the castle and Carrie's like hanging on to Andre, you know, like uh, Andre's doing Hodor duty. And uh, there's a moment where he needs to break away to help Mandy like uh, deal with Christopher Guest or break down a door, I guess. So anyway, so he's like, uh, he's like, Carrie, I need to put you over here. Just hold on to this for a second. And I cannot count the number of times in my life where I've been had some kind of like, it's usually a club or some venue that is notoriously dirty and inaccessible and shitty. And we have to do an elaborate transfer that takes several minutes. And you have to mm -hmm. navigate through a crowd of people and a bunch of obstacles to get where you got to go. Uh, there's a point where my helper gets tired or they have to go do something to like set up my chair at the top of wherever we're going. And so they're like, okay, just like hold on here and I, I'll be right back. Every single time that happens to me, I tense up. And it, I, I feel like I'm in an action movie and they're leaving me on the edge of a ledge and they're just like, I'll help you up in a moment. <laughs> and and it, I, it drives me nuts because when you are used to using mobility aids that are specifically crafted to the way that you distribute your balance and then suddenly you have to hold on to some shitty railing against a pub wall for like what feels like 10 years, it's like, it, please don't go. I will fucking fall just from the my mental headspace and the spasticity that that results in mm -hmm. so yeah this gave me like anxiety because he like makes him hang on to some shitty statue or something there's nothing to grab onto there and he's just like i'll leave you over here i'll be back in a minute and i turned <laughs> into schwarzenegger <laughs> and so yeah so it's like oh man yeah the, the whole sequence of events after he's basically disabled just reminds me of me anytime i'm out of my wheelchair where there's like pillows required to hold me up or it's like it's me on an airplane so i'm leaning up against someone or something or there's like towels all around me and and yeah there's definitely when he was left by that statue it reminds me of the times where like i'm in bed and the attendant is like got me half dressed and then has an emergency call and has to leave me. And I'm just like, just, they just shove me against the pillow and go, I'll be back soon. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a tacit reminder that you're never on your own schedule. Like you, you no matter what you do, like if your helper needs a break, so do you. And there's the, the, the there's the feeling of being marooned in a familiar space, which drives me nuts. That happens sometimes when my parents drive my chair away from my bed while I'm sleeping and I wake up and I go, what the fuck do I do now? Mm. Because I'm not about to crawl across the hardwood for nine years, to, yeah. to especially when I'm tr focusing on not pissing my pants first thing in the morning. Uh, so yeah, there's a whole bunch of feelings associated with, with, that, with that moment. And it's such a small moment. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I, like, I think I left at that scene just because it's, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, um, it's not really told from, from Wesley's point of view, but, and I laughed at it just because I don't know, it's, man, I guess, I don't know, maybe I'm, 
maybe that's my like ableism showing or something but it it's funny that it's just like oh here like just you know be cool <laughs> like have fun that's what i'm know. saying like they i laugh too i'm not saying it's not funny mm-hmm. like i it is interesting to me that 100 percent of the time that carrie is disabled you are meant to be laughing yeah of course when he's uh being tortured you're not like that's supposed to be him at his lowest although didn't we laugh <laughs> when he's like screaming and it like echoes across the whole kingdom <laughs> yeah. yeah that's true well, they played that for a fact too like yeah, yeah kept zooming out further and further and you could still hear his screaming i thought it they'd... right and then it goes he's what, like that's what, the sound of the man who has you know lost his true love or whatever <laughs> yeah yeah and he says it like like so sincerely mandy patinkin <laughs> that is a man with mm-hmm. a broken heart we must go this way <laughs> um I, oh, it also reminds me, of, like, you know that there's a game in Whose Line Is It Anyway called Props? Yeah. In this point of the movie, Carrie is still a character, but he's also a prop. Physically, his body is a prop for yeah. for the remaining actors to kind of use. But under the attendant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the, the movie never behaves as though it's possible that he will be this way permanently, which is part of which is part of keeping the the desired tone throughout. It would be too dark if there was any risk that this would have any lasting effect. So we are mm-hmm. waiting for him to become able-bodied again. So it's easier to kind of consume all this. Yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting too because there is the like dramatic standing moment mm. that you know that we we see in other disability films, but it's different because. It is the it is the dramatic moment and it does have the desired effect where he's able to like bluff the villain into like surrendering. Um but then he like falls down anyway. Um <laughs> so I don't know. I, I guess I just I, it's it's complicated. Like I've I've mixed feelings about it. <laughs> the the fact that it, it wants you the movie more wants you to laugh than it wants you to, you know, celebrate for Carrie. Mm-hmm. And I think that is what makes it far more approachable, like from a disabled viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Would you want Andre the Giant to be Andre the Attendant for you? Uh, yeah, I would probably discriminate though if I was asking him to do anything gently. Like yeah. <laughs> if I was asking him to help me with foot orthotics or to put me on my bike, I'd be like, Andre, I don't know about this. I'm sorry. Or like washing you in the shower. <laughs> yeah yeah like he definitely scrubbed you a little too hard unintentionally his hand would be as big as my chest <laughs> i i feel the same way like i would use him in certain parts of traveling to just be like can you throw me on this bed real quick um yeah. or they throw me in this cab seat or throw me on the airplane but then if it was like i need to put socks on i'll just like might as well bring a cast at the same time agreed i have a question do you think the six-fingered man is a disabled character okay i'm glad you brought this up because while you were talking about under the giant i thought of him because again this is a quote disability by like the biological definition of the term right but it in effect is technically an extra ability like imagine this guy on the piano but he doesn't play piano and it isn't they never say that he's like better at sword fighting because of his extra finger so i might argue with that 
but it's his distinguishing feature. And I also think it's funny that there's a moment where like, I think it's Wesley is asking someone, I can't remember. He's like, do you have six fingers on your hand? And the guy's like, that's a weird question to like ask or like, you know, when you don't even know me. And I was just thinking how, how it's funny when people will, you know, lead into a conversation about, are you like, what's your disability? Yeah, but that's not exactly what he was doing, but I don't know. To answer your question, though, I think anyone who needs custom gloves has a disability. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like, and I think you, because I think the six fingered man probably needed an occupational therapist in, in middle school. <laughs> yeah, like, mm. where does he put his pinky finger on home row? On the enter key? Well, on, on the. What, on the semicolon or maybe on the apostrophe <laughs> <laughs> yeah obviously tony <laughs> um unless it was on his left hand and then he was screwed yeah then everything's in chaps lock <laughs> yeah but i mean if he is disabled then it's almost like you know having having a scar or something where the villain has some you know feature that is you know some kind of you know physical difference mm-hmm. that kind of clues you in that he might not be the hero yeah some deformity that says that they are damaged. Mm-hmm. Mind you, like I think the reason why they made him a six figure a six fingered man <laughs> was for the silliness of of such a of such a scenario. Um, so you're not actually meant as an audience member to be scared by it. You're just sort of supposed to be like flummoxed or something. Mm-hmm. There's probably a better word for that. But anyway, yeah. And so the intent of the joke then, I suppose, is ableist because they're just thinking like, what is the most ridiculous disability? I know an extra finger. Mm-hmm. And there's the gag where they like show his glove and it's got like another finger on it. Yeah. I have a hard time calling this movie ableist just because of like where it's coming from is so pure and funny and harmless. It's got like yeah. Monty Python or like Robin Hood Men in Tights vibes where it's just mm-hmm. goofy over the top for the sake of just pure entertainment value. And so, of course, like a comedy can be ableist, but it doesn't hold as much weight when they make a potentially ableist joke purely in jest versus like when a, dra- when a drama is making some ableist reference and taking itself very seriously. I might disagree with you on one count. Because I think that the movie, the movie thinks the worst fate that can befall Carrie L. Elways <laughs> is not only having an awkward last name to pronounce, but the idea that he could be severely disabled. Because there, okay, so there's a clip when he's still attached to the torture device in the king's basement. You truly love each other, and so you might have been truly happy. Not one couple in a century has that chance, no matter what the storybooks say. And so I think no man in a century will suffer as greatly as you will. Doctor 50! So the actual way to torture a lovesick man is to, is to break his heart. So it's to separate him from his bride. And so the worst fate to suffer is not becoming disabled. It's not being able to realize whatever love you're trying to pursue or whatever. And so this is kind of silly, <laughs> but it's necessary for the plot. And it makes it makes a lot of sense for the ensuing third act, which is quite funny. 
But there's another final quote later in the movie when Carrie confronts the king and he again threatens to disfigure him. To the pain means the first thing you lose will be your feet below the ankles. Then your hands at the wrists. Next your nose. And then my tongue, I suppose. I killed you too quickly the last time. A mistake I don't mean to duplicate tonight. I wasn't finished. The next thing you lose will be your left eye, followed by your right. And then my ears, I understand. Let's get on with it. Wrong! Your ears you keep, and I'll tell you why. So that every shriek of every child at seeing your hideousness will be yours to cherish. Every babe that weeps at your approach, every woman who cries out, Dear God, what is that thing? will echo in your perfect ears. That is what the pain means. It means I leave you in anguish, wallowing in freakish misery forever. I think you're bluffing. It's possible, pig. I might be bluffing. It's conceivable, you miserable, vomitous mass. I'm only lying here because I lack the strength to stand. So he kind of threatens to do onto the king what the king tried to do to him. And there's this, like, again, the idea that if you really want to hurt a power-hungry member of the aristocracy, what you really want to do is take away their status because that is where they derive all of their purpose and motivation. So you want to make them feel worthless from from the point of view of their ultimate value system. So yes, maybe making them a quote-unquote freak uh, would be, of course, a terrible fate to befall. But it's just sort of interesting to me that this is the film's imagination of the worst possible outcome for a character, especially for a movie that has dealt with otherness and otherwise such a such a fun and interesting and and generous and equitable way. Yeah, I agree. Like this, like that quote to me is kind of exquisitely ableist because he's specifically saying, I'm going to make you blind and I'm going to make you an amputee and everyone's going to be disgusted by you. And, you know, that's that's what you deserve. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's also the ugliest line in the movie. Like it's the mm-hmm. darkest, it's the darkest sentiment and it comes from our hero at the very end. And it's sort of meant, I think, to also make him appear more menacing than he actually can physically realize because right now Carrie is disabled. So the best way that he can intimidate is through his words. Mm-hmm. And he's stalling for time, right? Yeah. It does make sense from a logistical point of view and a psychological one, but it's also like a, a crying shame that it is something that comes from our hero. There's also a little Easter egg of a pretty inside baseball wheelie reference that you may or may not have noticed, but there's a little short part of a scene with the king or whatever on his throne, and one of his right-hand men puts his hand on the armrest, and the king <laughs> looks at him and goes, and just like gives him a dirty look, and the guy like pulls his arm back, like apologizing for touching his armrest. There's a parallel there between throne armrest etiquette and wheelchair armrest etiquette that may be worth discussing that's funny i hadn't thought of that i i just saw it like you know the king has a case of the not gaze <laughs> he's just like you're in my personal <laughs> space get out of here that's how i saw it but but would you agree that there is definitely um some kind of armrest etiquette in your wheelchair 
I would say, I don't know if I've ever had anyone touch my armrest that wasn't drunk or a partner. <laughs> really? So yeah, like arm, arm, like foot pedal is one thing. Uh, like handlebars at the back of the chair is another because that's for pushing. But armrest, that's like, that's kind of intimate, I would think. Maybe it's because people understand that better, like, because they're used to sitting in chairs with armrests. They're not used to sitting in chairs with like handles or whatever. Mm-hmm. For me, I don't really use my armrests. They're just there because chairs apparently have to have them, but my arms don't actually sit on them. And so people do use my armrests. It's the same as any sort of touching of the wheelchair. It doesn't really bother me, but I know that it does bother many people. For me, it just feels like, I guess it feels the same, well, maybe not the same, but similar or close to how it might feel if someone like put their hand on your shoulder or like was like arm to arm to you. Like it doesn't feel like an invasion of space unless there's like a clear lack of familiarity. Like if it's a complete stranger resting their personal belongings on your armrest, then it feels like, yeah, they're not thinking of you as a person. But if a friend is just resting their arm on your armrest, it feels like they just feel like they're close enough to you to do that. And it honestly just feels nice sometimes. It does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I know sometimes when I'm in my manual chair in public, I feel safer if someone is like, has their hand on the chair, like the person who's pushing me. It's like, yeah, you know. He's not going to roll away. Yeah, because rolling yeah. away is a real thing, yeah. by the way. Like, I I loathe. They turn around all of a sudden, they're like, where's Jamie? This is something I loathe. When I'm first starting to make friends with an able-bodied guy, especially, women will never do this. I know that's a generalization, but I must make it in this particular case. Like, <laughs> like, a, like usually, guys will always have a moment where they'll be like, they'll treat me like a football they'll be like oh it's a he's a toy a prop so they'll be like hey jamie man i'm not pushing did you notice and i'll be like yeah i fucking noticed i can feel pressure on my shoulders when you're pushing the chair jackass and i don't call the person a jackass in the moment of course but i do let them know that i don't feel safe when they do that i try to make it funny but there is a part of me that is pissed off and generally speaking like women friends of mine will never do that like they'll, they'll never let go unless unless like something happens where they, they have to let go. I'll <laughs> <laughs> never let go of Jane. They got just wishing they wouldn't or something. <laughs> <laughs> just like the scene in Titanic where like, I'll never let go and then immediately drowns. <laughs> immediately. But yeah, like chair touching is uh it's is, personal. Is interesting. It is personal, inevitably. Yeah. I can also always tell when someone's touching the chair. Like, and not just the handlebars. Like, you you get, like, a sixth sense. Uh, like, oh, someone's in my space. Like, I know, generally. And I sometimes get the sense that people just assume that I don't know. My parents have a, have a tendency when I'm in my manual chair to just kind of move me out of the way. Like, if they're going to do something and I'm in the hallway, they will, like, grab the chair and, like, nudge it forward and be like... You meant to go over here, right, Joe? And then he'll like he'll just fuck off to the attic or something. And I'll just be like, Dad, please don't do that. But like it's not in his mind that he's, you know, crossing a boundary. So 
able-bodied people do that sometimes too though like if you're in the kitchen and you're trying to get to the sink and someone's like at the sink talking to someone in the living room they might like grab you by the shoulders and kind of like guide you to the left a bit so they can get to the sink yeah yeah they'll they'll, they'll drive out of the blue yeah I had a coworker uh, who, during stand-up meetings in the morning, when we were giving status updates on our workload, he would like very deliberately uh, put his rest his feet on my foot pedals as a joke, and I always kind of relished it, to be honest. Yeah, it's like camaraderie. Yeah, first thing in the morning, I don't really give a fuck. Like, I'm not trying to be productive or whatever. At least for the first hour, like I'm just trying to wake up. And so I think that it sets a nice tone for other people in the office who like aren't really acclimatized to me. So I would really like it whenever a boss would walk by and be like, Ben, get your feet off Jamie. And I'd be like, it's fine. You know, there's no stools for him. So I'm happy to oblige or something stupid. I don't know. The point is that sometimes you you want the way that people treat you to be an indicator of to be a demonstration of how you want to be treated. And you can't always do that alone. Yeah, but I think it definitely depends on the context of how well you know that person. Like For if sure. that was the first time you ever met the person and they just came up and put their feet up on your footplates, that would feel invasive. But because you already have like a closeness and a camaraderie with Ben in this case, like putting his, putting his feet up on your footrests is just an extension or a manifestation of that. Yeah. If you would accept physical touch from that person, you'll probably accept physical wheelchair touch. Yep. But I think it's also very personal, and everyone sort of has different rules when it comes to where their comfort zones start and end with those kinds of things. Some people put spikes on their chairs so that people don't try to push them. Like pigeon spikes? (laughs) Yeah, like like the same spikes that I avoid with foam tires. With solid tires, yeah. <laughs> so this movie definitely is a wheelie movie. Also, there's a couple of references to masks that could make it a COVID movie at the beginning. <laughs> but overall, I mean, I love this movie. And I'm, I was very happy to have to watch it for this. Yeah, we're not just flattering you, Michael. Like, this was a great film. <laughs> cool. Yeah, it was fun to watch. I was just going to say, it's cool to discuss this uh, stuff with you guys because it's, yeah, things that I've been, like, kind of half-formed ideas, but never really got a chance to talk with somebody who would get it from that angle. I like the game of forcing a non-really movie into a really movie because those are mm-hmm. generally just fun movies anyway, but it's a good mental exercise to try to find these parallels, draw the parallels, extrapolate them into some worthy conversation. So I have a lot of fun with these. Cool. That said, another game I like to play is called Wheel Breakers. Do you guys have any interest in playing Wheel Breakers? Um, I meant to come up with one beforehand, but I I have not. But I'd be, yeah, I'm, I'm down to play. Well, let's fire it up and see... Where it goes. Wheel breakers. The uh, bugle intro is appropriate to like the. That's true. Well. It's <laughs> the first time that intro has ever been very on brand for the movies that we watch. 
All right, I'm going to try to go first here. I'm going to make you guys fully rewarded. Mike, I know, I know you know how this game works. So mm-hmm. the catch is, even though you're fully able-bodied, every day at a random point throughout the day, within your waking hours, you will just start bawling profusely for 20 minutes. Oh my just God. Just start crying. You don't feel sad, but it's just you go through the motions of like, Intense tears, maybe like very, very loud crying. It could be in the middle of dinner. It could be when you're alone in your room and nobody notices. It could be in the middle of a conversation with one of your clients. So that's totally unpredictable? It's totally unpredictable. 20 minutes a day. 20 minutes? Good lord. Remember, you don't feel sad. The people around you might be like, are you okay? And you can just be like, no, I'm fine. This is just, it's like a thing, a condition. I mean, that would be quite dramatic for everyone else around you. I'm yeah, just trying to right. think the number of times I've been in public and and someone has started crying for their own reasons. Like there's always this, it the 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 concern spreads like wildfire. Yeah. It's like what's going on with that person? What can we do? What's, so I don't know, man. But there's almost never enough you can do to console them. So, I mean, can you pretend to be cry laughing? Like you just watch a hilarious YouTube video and you're laughing to the point of tears. Yeah, you can pretend, but it's still just as jarring because you could just be like in the middle of a sentence and then just for 20 minutes, you're just like, oh, my God. Yeah. I, I how, And wait, can we make this funny somehow? <laughs> okay. For 20 minutes a day, you just start crying laughing. <laughs> I know, like either one is bad. It's almost like the Joker, you know, where it's, it's like yeah. a condition where it's like uncontrollable after, which is also very uncomfortable. Oh yeah, true. It's like pretty creepy. Yeah, even like, if you're laughing, it's it's going to be very uncomfortable. And so I assume when you're not, if you're if you're crying but not sad, then you could be laughing and not you're not happy. So that that could be man every day, twenty minutes. Could I bring you? I don't actually know which one is worse. Anthony. Right. Yeah. Could I bring you with me uh, wherever I go? And then you just make sure to tell funny jokes at regular intervals so I can have some inspiration to cry laugh for the for the 20 minutes. Yeah, you could just bring someone and then just have them in on it. Tell them, like, this is my condition. I will do this once in a while. And then... <laughs> once in a while, meaning every day. Yeah, every day. And they can just kind of like play along with it. But I don't, I've never made a joke that made someone laugh for 20 minutes. There was that one time with the, with the, the Chad Kroger meme. <laughs> but anyway, we, we won't elaborate on that. The time you became a celebrity? <laughs> no. Oh. Although I did laugh for a very long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I, I'm very, very proud of that one. So how about we just go around discovering elevators throughout mm-hmm. the day, and then we can cry laugh for 20 minutes. Discovering elevators? Yeah. <laughs> to reproduce the Franco moment. Oh, yeah, it would be very much like that. With context, it's super endearing and charming and enlightening, but without context... Like Mark said, it's pretty dark. Mm, yeah, I I don't I don't think I could do that. That's that's a lot to um yeah, I think the the uh, social awkwardness uh, awkwardness 
awkwardness of it would be a bit a bit much especially yeah when you have a job when you're like with people <laughs> in uh sensitive moments <laughs> in your job it's almost better to go with the crying option because if someone is like pouring their soul out right. you, and then you just start laughing for 20 minutes yeah <laughs> if i had to choose i would definitely go with crying yeah i'd say that but otherwise i think the answer is wheel if um, I understand the terminology correctly. <laughs> yeah, we still don't understand. <laughs> we all know the all. I wouldn't be able to do it either. What about you, Jimmy? It didn't sound like you came up with a elaborate enough plan to get I don't think it, I, I don't think I could mitigate it. I think I think they'd lock me up eventually. I don't think it would work out for me. <laughs> you, know, you mean the mob? <laughs> <laughs> you mean like a medical bracelet that says if I'm laughing, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. I have a wheel breaker. So you get to be 100% able-bodied. Uh, but anytime you ask for assistance for something, and you might need to help me workshop this because I can't remember the line exactly, but you have to preface your question with, hello, my name is Diego Montoya. You have killed my father. Can you please pass the ketchup? Inigo, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes. Yeah, Inigo. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but... Yeah, I was I was gonna go along similar lines of like even just having to say that once or multiple times a day, I think is just random. I mean, if it's that, if it's the exact quote, you could almost get away with it because it's such a famous line. But yeah. if you're doing it for yourself personally, um, yeah, you have to use your own name, right? Oh, hello, my name. But then Jamie Mendek just feels awkward in that phrase in that line. <laughs> yeah. Now, in the movie, he uses that line to kind of build up the willpower to overcome his obstacles. And in this case, your obstacle is not having ketchup. <laughs> well, <laughs> I was just saying, like, maybe we refine the wheel breaker conditions and you have to say it anytime you need motivation to do something. Like you go to the gym and between each rep, you got to say, hello, my name is Jamie Mendick. You've killed my father. Well, you're just saying it to yourself then. I think it's funnier if you have to say it to someone and live in that embarrassment. <laughs> right. Yeah. And also, it, <laughs> if you're saying, because um, originally you said anytime you need needed like to ask a request of somebody, but if you're yeah. 100% able-bodied, then you don't need help anymore, right? So the, <laughs> well, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> that's a misnomer. <laughs> yeah. You, you would become immediately aware of all the ways in which you need help that don't relate to disability. Yeah. And all of your emails would be annoying. <laughs> <laughs> what if it's like a random thing, kind of like my real breaker, where just like three times a day you say this line just randomly in the middle of another sentence? Like, it's like a tick. That brings to mind my favorite wheel breaker, which was moisturous. <laughs> anyway, sorry, neither here nor there. Uh, I don't like the idea of it being random intervals. I want it to be with most requests that I ask throughout the day. And it's not specifically past the ketchup, it's whatever request you're asking for. Yeah, it's whenever you need help. Yeah, I think it's funny because it does, it reinforces your like drive to be self sufficient and yeah. not it does. rely on anyone else. Yeah, because of. My name is Anthony McCullough. I'm going to need the ketchup. Please pass the ketchup. <laughs> no, you're supposed to say you've killed my father. Oh, you have to say you've killed my father. <laughs> yeah. Okay. My name is Andy McAuliffe. You've killed my father. I'd like to pick up my prescription. 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> can you put it in the? Can you put it in your email signature? <laughs> <laughs> you would have to, yeah. Um, yeah, I should do that. All right. I think it would just if if you deliver it correctly, especially because we're keeping the "You've killed my father." It's a famous enough quote, like Mike said, that people would probably get the reference. And if they don't, you just be like, ah, oh, whatever. They're not cool enough. <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Yeah, you just turn into a hipster, like able-bodied person. Yeah, it's just like oh, a yeah. subversive joke, and only the cool kids understand you. Oh, become a and hipster. like you have to get used to like some weird looks, but that's what my thirty-one years of disability has prepared me for, anyway. For sure, <laughs> I would agree with that. Well, this was super fun, Mike. Thank you for reaching out to us with all these movie recommendations. Honestly. Like I said, like these the movies you've given us have all stood out to me of the ones we've watched. Murderball was just amazing. Again, sorry I didn't realize you had earmarked that one. That's on us. Yeah, no, that was a super I mean, I really enjoyed your guys' episode and I'm not like a big sports fan, so I I didn't mind. It was it was a fun movie and I didn't see anything like it like when I was, you know, twenty or whatever when it came out. Yeah. But um yeah, no worries. If you're open to this, I would like to do a second episode on Gregory Go Boom and watch it with you. <laughs> okay. And and, and I just just ask you several questions. Well, I think I have a couple movies that you haven't watched yet, so I'd be willing to have a small conversation about Gregory Go Boom <laughs> in another episode. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but I honestly would feel better about that as well, because I don't know if I could bring myself to devote another whole episode to that movie, because I, my soul went boom when I watched it. Yeah, I was <laughs> yeah. gonna say, what if we, what if we made like a fake episode called Gregory Go Boom Two or Gregory <laughs> Go Boom Boom, and then, <laughs> and then we like we spitball about the hypothetical plot of uh, of that film. Anyway, yeah, there's a whole bunch of things we could do that would I think would be a lot of fun. Yeah, I'd be I'd be totally into that. Cool. Great idea. I'm excited. Um, until then, though, uh, can people get in touch with you if they want some therapy from you? Yeah, so I I'm I'm willing to or I'm able, I'm legally able to do therapy with anyone in the state of California. Um however, if you are outside of California, um I may be able to offer some kind of coaching service. Just for for legal reasons, it can't can't be therapy outside of California. I'm kind of in the process of offering a astrological coaching or counseling service, um, but I've really enjoyed working with the the small number of disabled clients that I've had in, in therapy so far. So if there if there's anyone out there that yeah is looking for a counselor or or therapist, um, yeah, they should contact me and we can we can see if we can work something out. Um, my my website is archetypal-wellness.com which is a mouthful but I think the the link will be in the show notes. Yep, for sure. My Instagram is archetypal underscore wellness and on Facebook it's uh, facebook.com slash McLafferty Therapy so that's my last name uh, followed by therapy and yeah, my, my email is michaelmclafferty at gmail.com. Yeah, we didn't even talk about the um, potential avenue of we talked about how disability may or may not shape 
your approach to counseling, but as a disabled person who has gone through counseling in the past, mm-hmm. having to explain your situation and build that understanding with a counselor beyond going through your past and all of your other baggage that you're trying to work through, it always feels like a chore and sometimes feels like unbridgeable gap because of the disability. Mm. So I can definitely see a lot of value in being able to talk to you as a person with a disability and you having a person, you having a disability, just being able to relate on that level and sort of have that understanding out of the gate than just being able to work through whatever it is you're actually there to work through. I can see that being super valuable. Yeah, I, I think it does. It does inform how I work, and um, yeah, I'm I'm definitely interested in in being able to help people work through their issues, whatever they are. And um, if it's yeah, if it's disability related, I I have some experience with that. You have such a calm, centered presence. I think you'd be a great listener and a great therapist. Just being able to like take it all in, synthesize it. I maybe I'll hit you up. <laughs> I was about to All say right. that I, I think this conversation is evidence of everything you two are saying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's been awesome for me too. It's definitely a, it's a two way street. So yeah, I appreciate the, this time to hang out. Yeah. This was super fun. Until next time, regular goes boom, boom. <laughs> Take care everyone. All right. See ya. Bye.